I was in a meeting with another bank um, relatively recently. I had a someone relatively high up, and the person said to me, he was sitting around with all his auto analysts, and he says, can you explain to me how you figured this out? And my response was, I can count to 10. Hello, and welcome to the Atonicast. I'm Kirsten Korosek, Senior Transportation Reporter with TechCrunch. And I'm Alex Roy from the Human Driving Association, and occasionally, depending on my mood, Argo AI. And I'm Ed Niedermeyer. I'm the author of Ludicrous, the Unvarnished Story of Tesla Motors. And I'm very excited today because we are going to be discussing an issue that really is uh, at the heart of uh, autonomous vehicles, and yet it's strangely one that doesn't get discussed in a, a serious, substantive way often enough. And we are very lucky to be joined by uh, the perfect guest with which to discuss this topic, which is, by the way, the economics of robotaxis and autonomous ride-hailing. Um, we're joined today by Dr. Ashley Nunes. He's a research fellow at Harvard Law School and previously a research scientist at MIT. His work on the economics of self-driving cars has been covered by The Economist, The Guardian, Automotive News, and others. We're very happy to have him today. Dr. Nunes, welcome to the Autonicast. Thank you for having me. If I may just Oh, no. Say, Here we go. Go oh, right. Go Here in. Here we go. Uh, I've been a, a huge fan of Dr. Nunez for some time because when the Human Driving Association was founded, um, I felt like I was a lonely voice um, skeptically calling out a lot of nonsense coming out of the AV sector. And you, doctor, one of the few real academics, true experts, um, making you know cogent arguments, really, really good stuff. And then I, I saw you speak at a forum, I guess, last year, and it was a, it was a quote-unquote debate, although it really wasn't much of a debate. Uh, and on one side of the stage, you were, I guess, the anti-AV um, uh, camp. You were, had a, a professor from NYU was with you, but I forget her name. And then uh, and the pro-AV camp was um, Chris Armson, everyone's friend from Aurora, and uh, our friend Amitai Bin Nun. And Amitai is a friend, uh, a friend of mine, a personal friend. And I was um, I was surprised that the pro AV camp did not make better arguments. They made almost only moral arguments for whether or not AVs should exist, um, but no business uh, or technical arguments. And then, and then and you came at it, you know, very pointedly from the business case. And so I, that's why I'm so glad to have you here today. Well, thanks, Alex. Uh, well, first, let me begin by saying, call me Ashley. Uh, secondly, uh, my, uh, my, uh, collaborator during that panel was Dr. Meredith Broussard. She is a, um, she's a professor at NYU. She has written the book. Um, I believe it's, uh, I think it's unartificial intelligence, <laughs> um, but it's, it's really a great book. And, you know, I certainly encourage, um, you know, your, your listeners to, to read it. It's really a, a wonderful book on the history of technology. Um, to your point about, uh, you know, about, you know, the cost and the economics of robo taxis. It's it's quite interesting, isn't it? That my view of that particular uh, event last year, it was held by I think uh, Intelligence Squared. Was I best summed it up as the pro AV camp saying, "Well, just trust us. We'll get this done. You don't need to worry about the economics because it will all just work out." Um, and we said, "Well." You know, we've we've crunched the numbers, and as it turns out, um, the story is far more complicated than you think it is, um, which raises a very important question about uh, all the liquidity that is being poured into the markets. Uh, you know, to bring this um, 
supposed transformation, a public health transformation to bear. It would, it's fascinating that that there has been so much money poured into autonomous vehicles without, at least publicly, like you assume that investors are doing their diligence behind the scenes and have their own ideas about the business model and the economics of how this will all work. But you, you're certainly not seeing much of that in the public with, with a few exceptions, which I want to discuss later. But first, I mean, so, so I became aware of you through a, a paper that you've written that has appeared in a, a number of media outlets, including... When I was at the drive, I wrote about it, um, and it's it's a really fascinating paper, and it's it's I love it because it's rigorous but provocative, which is like a is like my kind of combination, which unfortunately you don't get a ton of. Um, but like, how, how did first of all, just for a little bit of background for people, like how did you get into this topic, and then maybe sort of introduce the paper and and sort of what what the key findings of that are? Sure, of course. So uh, we started doing this work during my time at MIT. Uh, there was a um, There was a funded initiative at the time called the Mobility of the Future. Um, And the goal of that particular initiative was to understand what the future of mobility would look like. And of course, autonomous vehicles was part of that initiative. And when we were working on that, this was my colleague, Kristen Hernandez and myself. When we were working on that, you know, we, 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 we coined a phrase called driverless does not mean humanless. And it's the idea, essentially, that no matter how automated a system is in a safety-critical setting, uh, you require some degree of human oversight. And eventually, we published a paper on this. It appeared in Nature. And interestingly enough, the economics of robo-taxis was never on our list. It was never something that would even remotely interested me. But the minute you know, we we came to this conclusion that, look, you're going to require some degree of human oversight. The question then, of course, was, well, what's that going to cost? Um, And how do you get the economics to work? So the way we thought about it was, well, you can't have one so-called human operator or teleoperator watching one robotaxi. That just doesn't make any fiscal sense. So you need to have one individual walk over multiple robo-taxis. Um, and we said, okay, well, how many robo-taxis does one person need to watch in order to get the technology to be cost competitive? It was as simple as that. Um, and then as we started delving into the numbers more and more, we realized there was a fundamental disconnect uh, between The numbers the industry was putting out, uh, specifically uh, numbers that suggested robo-taxis could be cost-competitive with personal vehicle ownership, and the numbers we were generating. Uh, So we said, okay, well, let's let's look into this a little bit more. Um, And I believe ours is the first paper to go out um, and rely on publicly sourced data. So I think we have something like 35 or 40 pages of publicly sourced data. Uh, to come up with a cost model, um, you know, a cost model surrounding the robotaxi setup. And effectively, what we found was, you know, not to be coy about it, but everything we've been told about how cheap this technology is going to be is not backed up by the available evidence. Um, And there are a number of factors uh, that influence our result. Uh, not the least of which is that, quite frankly, my view is that many of the people uh, in this space don't seem to really understand how the taxi industry works. 
Um, and if you don't understand how the taxi industry works and you're talking about launching robo-taxis, um, that is, in my view, problematic. I, a quick question. Um, when you were talking about in the early days of looking at uh, the numbers that you were able to generate in comparison to the industry, can you describe to our audience like what your sources were for you know gleaning this information? How do you know that it's accurate? Um, and you know how did you go about verifying that information? Well, that's a very fair question. So uh, the first thing to note is that, and I want to be very clear about this: nobody actually knows what the technology is going to cost. Right? Nobody knows. So I think that there's a paper that's often cited. This is the 2015 paper. I think it was um, uh, Fagnant and Cockleman. Um, if you read that paper, they talk about. Um, they think uh, that you know at the onset when driverless cars are initially sold, the sticker price of the vehicle will be ten thousand dollars above uh, a regular vehicle today, and they think that over time it'll drop down to a be drop down to being about uh, three thousand dollars above the cost of a vehicle. So no one really knows. So our uh, approach was slightly different. What we did is we said, okay. Well, let's take all the costs of running a regular taxi operation today. Let's plug all those costs into a, a financial model. And let's then test what the subsequent elasticity is, right? The responsiveness of those costs. So, for example, we assumed um, that the cost of, insu of insuring a, a robo-taxi was about $9,600 because that's what it costs to insure a taxi today if you're in San Francisco, which was one of the target markets we looked at. One of the talking points of this technology is because uh, road crashes uh, will be rare, uh, insurance rates will go down. So you might say, aha, well, $9,600 seems like it's too much. What our model shows is that that particular variable is inelastic. And what that means basically is that um, reducing the insurance price uh, does not meaningfully change the fare a consumer would have to pay, all else being equal. In fact, what we demonstrate, so if you think about the main talking points of the technology, well, the robo-taxi is far too expensive, or the, the capital cost of a robo-taxi or an autonomous vehicle is too expensive. You think about the reductions in insurance that we hear so much about. Uh, you think about the reductions in insurance, uh, of, excuse me, of maintenance, because the car will be uh, either electric, et cetera, um, and the elimination of medallion costs. One of the points we make in our paper that we can demonstrate is that you could reduce all those costs to zero. You could make the vehicle free, free. You could have zero cost for insurance. You could have a zero cost for maintenance and you could have a zero cost for medallions. And the price point would still be more expensive than owning a regular vehicle today. So this is really interesting um, because, and and you mentioned in the in the piece that that the key, you know, all those those issues are not the sort of key factor for price. That the key factor is actually utilization. And what's fascinating about that um, is that that's where actually this sort of what I think to some people would seem like a skeptical viewpoint on AVs matches up actually with what the industry is saying, at least more privately, which is that you know if we're going to make the economics of this work, utilization rates are going to be. 
um, the, the key to, to that. So explain, uh, you know, that analysis. Um, uh, how do you get to that, um, that point where, you know, what is it about the model that, that, that makes it so that utilization is so important and these other things that people tend to think about just aren't? Well, uh, if you think about the taxi industry today, it's, it's actually, a, well, historically, at least investing in taxis, if you were, a, 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 you know, a, a taxi operator, not a taxi driver, has been a pretty good deal because the way the the current model works, the predominant model essentially is that if I am a taxi driver, uh, I go out to a taxi company and I pay that company a fee for renting out the taxi. Um, and what that means is that effectively, uh, the taxi operator, the company, the firm, gets a fee regardless of whether or not the backseat is occupied. They don't know. They don't care. They're getting paid regardless. But of course, that's not the same for the driver who is on the hook effectively uh, to earn a, a living wage. And if you look at markets, we can just talk about the United States for a second. Of course, you, uh, utilization rates vary considerably by market. So um, New York, for example, has one of the higher utilization rates, particularly in Manhattan. Um, in San Francisco, we estimated it to be about 52%. Um, and of course, even over here, there's a difference between you know the backseat being occupied in a regular taxi and the backseat being occupied for the ride-hailing company like Uber or Lyft. And of course, uh, you know, Alan Kruger, the late Alan Kruger, who, who was the head of um, President Obama's uh, Council of Economic Advisors, you know, he had done some very interesting work back in 2014, 2015, in which he was able to demonstrate that, in fact, the utilization rates of Ubers and Lyfts were, in fact, significantly higher than taxis. It makes perfect sense. Um, but... Even over there, uh, you know, if we look at, you know, I think in our case, we estimated uh, the utilization rate to be about 52% in San Francisco. The numbers have varied a little bit. Uh, I've seen numbers as high as 64% in Los Angeles. Um, in Beijing, it's 58%. In Singapore, it's closer to 66%. And of course, there's some fluctuation here. But the point is, number one, you never, ever approach maximum utilization. That's the first point. And the second point is, even if you were to achieve maximum utilization, if you had a fair-paying passenger in the back all the time, you would still be unable to compete with personal vehicle ownership unless you were willing to lower the margins that your investors are expecting, or at least the margins you have promised your investors. Alex? Well, I could say a lot here, but I... I, well, go for it, Alex. No, no. I, you know, I have taken your position for a very long time that it is it is a mathematical problem, maybe more so than a technical one. Um, but you know, of course, I'm that's easy for me to say now because I'm working for a company who's often said the same things, which is that uh, this is a a business problem. Uh, and my, well, how, how do I phrase this in a diplomatic fashion? Um, I think. <laughs> uh, you know, when I chose to cross the fence and join an AV company, um, it was inconceivable given what I was hearing from most of them, which were, you know, exaggerations, um, you know, promises being made to investors that made no sense. Uh, and yet I am absolutely convinced from the other side that it is possible to build a, a business, but it's not the businesses that we've been 
it's not the bill of goods we've been hearing uh, from most of these companies. I mean, in Uber's case, I even if Uber, I hate to quote unquote, solved autonomy tomorrow, it's hard to understand, given the structural problems of the company, how they could ever make it profitable without making profound changes to the pricing structure um, and, and pulling out of a number of markets. Because there are markets in which a functional AV tomorrow will not function for decades, will not become profitable for decades, if ever. Uh, I mean, I think Uber said that four cities comprise the overwhelming majority of the revenue. Is that, is that correct? Was it, uh, at, if, if, if I recall correctly, it's New York, San Francisco, Los Angeles, and um, I want to say either Chicago or Washington, D.C. Yeah, so if you know, it, it, I, I completely buy the argument that if you just switch to AVs in those cities, in the current environment, in a mixed, in a mixed um, environment of rival companies that may or may not be AVs, uh, human-driven vehicles, um, and um, medallion fleets, that I, I'm not quite sure how you you would build a business there given the, the debt that Uber saddled with. But in a mixed uh, in a mixed business model with a couple of fundamental changes, and the one I totally buy is that the AV operator um, doesn't generate any revenue or, or get paid because there's no medallion uh, unless they have a paying passenger, and then moves you know moves the fence or creates a fence in which they can maximize utilization. Then over time, that external factors in the environment will eventually lead to a profitable business environment. But this is something that's going to take a long time. It's going to require a lot of companies to go out of business. It's going to require the ride hail companies to raise their fares. It's going to require um, probably uh, congestion pricing and a number of other things to change the mathematical model of operating a, a taxi business. I mean, if AVs never existed and we, or, or we're never going to exist, and you look at New York City, um, one has to solve traffic through many other approaches. And that is almost certainly going to include congestion pricing, um, some uh, limitation of vehicles on road, changes to the curbs, um, uh, limiting entry and access to the city because all those things have to happen anyway. And once you build a model that includes those factors, I'm, I see a clear path to profitability, but it's not going to be easy and it's not going to be soon. And, and your paper, um, actually mentions these, these sorts of things that, that cities can do to sort of change the, the equation for, for these companies, right? We do. I mean, we, you know, we, we, we mention it. We don't look into it too, too much. And there, there are two reasons for this. So let's take Singapore, for example. Um, you know, Singapore has effectively a cost of entitlement that it's a tax of sorts that doubles the price of a vehicle. That might be an example of a public policy lever that other cities might enact, which might make hailing a robocab far more fiscally appealing. But it's not the case that the likes of Uber or Lyft say, aha, our technology will only be cost uh, competitive after we get governments to raise the cost of owning a conventional vehicle. That's not what they tell us. What they tell us is this technology is going to be so darn cheap, you are going to want to give your vehicle away. I mean, I remember a few years ago, I think it was two years ago when... um, John Krafsik was in Lisbon and, you know, he, he was going on about how, well, uh, nothing short of full autonomy will do. And then he said, well, this technology is going to completely replace personally traveled miles in a regular vehicle. 
And then two years ago, he said, uh, oh, I'm sorry, last late last year, he said, well, autonomy will always have some limits because it turns out autonomy is difficult. And of course, uh, you know, I was a few of my friends were chuckling about it and they said, is this news to these people that it's so difficult to, you know, um, to automate these types of complexities? But again, it's the value proposition of this technology is, as the companies have described to us thus far, weak, but that's not to say it doesn't work. Greetings, Atonicat Nation. Pardon the interruption. We know you're all anxious to hear the rest of the show, but we need a minute of your time. Actually, Kirsten, we need a few minutes. Okay, fine. Well, let's be clear. We don't need your time as much as your information. You might have heard that we have created a survey. Hold up. Let's provide some context here. What started as a fun side project has turned into something much bigger than we ever expected. And so it's time for us to grow up just a little. And to do that, we need to better understand our audience. We created a survey to do just that. The data fields are mostly optional, but the more you provide, the more you help. Importantly, we will never share your personal information with anyone. Filling out this survey is the most effective way to help us make this podcast everything it can be. So please take a few minutes to visit atonicast.com slash survey and help us understand who you are and how we can improve. Thanks. So here's a quick question, kind of getting a little bit to what Alex was talking about. I'm just wondering if when you looked at... um you know, and when you studied this, if, if, uh, uh, not just uh, a mixed mode approach with working with public transit and all this other stuff, but even if, would it, would the numbers work out if, um, let's say an AV developer launches their robo taxis, but then actually optimized and only used AVs in certain, um, in certain areas of the geofence and the rest are human operated and that would change the dynamics because I know that some companies, um, like I've had conversations with Carl Yanyama, Carl Yanyama over at Aptiv about sort of what they've discovered is, um, would be a better approach would be to probably always have some humans in some aspect of a, uh, sort of robo taxi situation because, like short trips might work better for humans and then longer trips or vice, I mean, vice versa. So human trips, human operated trips would be better on longer trips, you know, like outside of Vegas, for example, and then within little short trips, then you have the autonomous um, operated ones. Did you ever look at that sort of mix? We have not looked at that sort of mix, but I would say the following. The first question is whether or not the same vehicle is being used to service, um, you know, an autonomous trip versus a non-autonomous trip, because if it's not, uh, then the capital cost of the autonomous vehicle is being spread over fewer miles, which drives your cost per mile up. On the other side of it, let's assume you do in fact use the same um, vehicle. Now you have a different problem, which is that you 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 had a driver before for some of these trips. And you do what? You take the driver and you have the driver sit it out in a, you know, in a teleoperation center somewhere. Uh, you know, again, it's not. I'm not saying the economics don't work. I'm just saying that there are some real challenges associated with this. I mean, what we don't say in the paper, but I, I'm happy to say now, um, is that we think that our assumptions are quite frankly um, 
not stringent enough. <laughs> For example, we assume the capital cost of the vehicle was $15,000. And let's be frank, there's no way an autonomous vehicle is going to cost $15,000. We also assumed that the teleoperator would get paid a minimum wage. Uh, you can say what you want. I don't know of a single uh, safety critical setup where the individual overseeing these types of setups, be they air traffic controllers, nuclear power plant operators, et cetera, are getting paid minimum wage. Okay. Uh, and finally, um, you know, we assume that one person was watching over 50 autonomous vehicles. I hate to tell you this, not going to happen. Mm-hmm. It, it's, it's, it, it completely pushes the boundaries of human supervision, of human attention, uh, I, in a previous li- life, I received some training as an air traffic controller. I, uh, much of my work has been in aviation. And even in uh, air traffic control, a very safety-critical profession, uh, You know, one person might watch over 20 airplanes, but those 20 airplanes still have human control in the cockpit. In this particular case, we're saying what? One person is watching over 50 vehicles and maybe has to provide some intervention you can define intervention however you want, while keeping an eye on 49 other vehicles. Um, And the reason why this matters, of course, is because when you lower the number of autonomous vehicles one person can watch, the cost goes up. Uh, So we assumed it was 1 to 50. Uh, We actually modeled it out uh, to 1,500, which is totally unrealistic, doesn't make a difference. But my suspicion, just based on what I have read and what I have seen of human-machine interaction, is the n- actual number will be closer to 1 to 10 to 1 to 12. Yeah. So so maybe what needs to happen is many of the companies in the AV sector who've made some exaggerated claims need to go out of business. So the remaining companies, <laughs> <laughs> so the remaining companies that have not made these claims, if only I could name one, mm-hmm. <laughs> Could wait, wait, wait that out and build businesses that do make sense once the externalities have been priced in to VMT. I think that's fair. I mean, although what I would say is, um, and I took the liberty of doing this um, last night. Well, this morning actually, after I got uh, Edward's email confirming the <laughs> the talk, I, I I said, "Oh, I wonder what this looks like." So I went to Waymo, uh, I went to Uber, um, I went to Lyft, and I was looking to see. Who, but you didn't go to Argo AI, the, the most honest website in the AV sector? Wait, who are they? Oh, I'm joking. <laughs> um, no, I was looking to see who they were actually hiring. And what you notice is that most of the job requisitions are for engineers. Um, a very small minority of these positions are for business development, for you know finance and economics to sort of build up what the business model looks like. And I think this reflects um, a mistaken assumption, in my view, that the business case will just sort itself out. Um, And, you know, as far as I'm concerned, at least, these are the types of questions people need to ask, particularly if the environmental benefits, the safety benefits, the public health benefits of this technology are to ultimately be realized. Actually, I'm going to agree with you there. Uh, I'm going to take that, that argument one step further. If the public can be, comes to trust or um, uh, believe or have faith that autonomous vehicle has benefits to their lives due to factors uh, uh, that are not price, that a business model will develop around them for that they will pay for. Yeah. 
and that it may not look like anything we've seen before. That's the only approach I think makes any sense because as you pointed out many times, and I agree with you, merely substituting an AV for a taxi as it operates today is not going to work at all, at all. But I, I do believe, I mean, I, I, since I've had a child, like my calculus is not entirely rational anymore about how, what I choose to pay for when I want to get from A to B in a city. I'm willing to pay literally any amount of money to believe that my child is safe and I don't care if it takes longer. I just want to know how long it takes. So this is a profound shift for me that a lot of people go through, but they just haven't had alternative choices. So I think that raising prices and what may not be a deterrent to, to certain types of customers in the same way that lowering prices um, has not been a deterrent to investors putting money in some of these companies. You know, customers at the end of the day are, are, they are rational, but for what reasons we believe to be irrational. Alex, real quick, really quickly though, you, in the in previously we've talked about how safety, you know, that people aren't going to choose um, necessarily. Like, if all robotaxis are safety are, are are all equally safe, that's not how people will choose them. They will choose them based on other, you know, features, for example, right? I actually believe this is pure speculation that you know. Uh, have you seen this? Um, this what is on Slate.com is Ask the Pilot. Have you seen that that column? And he talks about you know uh, aviation carriers in the first world and uh, you know ver- uh, versus the developing world. And there's no question that I am. I would be a little leery of getting on a, a, on on some aircraft in some countries. There's no question. Um, and uh, you know the history of Tupolev is not. Uh, not, or, not, or the 737 max at this point yeah but statistically that's like a blip okay. um yeah. the and so you know a company like um uber has a long way to go to developing trust i don't believe there's any safety metric they can ever show that will convince a lot of people that it's cool I just don't think it's possible. And so what I think we're going to have is these funny games where companies select fences that are easier to operate in um, that may be much less profitable, but allow them to claim a safety advantage mm-hmm. <laughs> because they're simpler environments. And I think that they, they will spend a lot of money and, and a lot of time to operate there over time to make their brands glow and hope to trade that against some future partnerships. And then there are going to be companies that, uh, you know, try to go into the hardest fence and, and literally set money on fire on the assumption that, that, that the math that Ashley points out will flip, will just magically flip. And I'm not sure either of these, uh, I don't think either of these things make any sense. I think the only bet for, for an AV company is to develop new models in partnerships with cities whose environments um, change due to policy changes and um, cultural shifts, you know, the, the, the thing for me to say this as the human driving association guy, this is insanity, but the biggest problem we has is there, there are literally too many cars on the road of any type. And once you price in the externalities uh, of, of vehicle miles traveled for real and, and the market you know, determines what things should cost road space, you know, uh, car ownership, then the math begins to shift. And this is this is going to take time, and only a, a company that's well financed and patient and doesn't try to shoehorn tech into a dead end is going to survive. I, I have another question for Ashley about the about the 
um, utilization issue because that does seem to be so fundamental in your model. Like, is that a product of, I think people forget that mobility is very peaky. Correct. Um, like demand for it is super peaky. And then, and that basically matching supply and demand in any business is the, is the key. And that's hard when your demands are, are, are peaky. Is that kind of one of the fundamental issues we're, we're grappling with here? It is. I mean, I think, uh, I, Yes, the simple answer is yes. I mean, it's very much in the flavor of the challenge that is posed uh, to public transit officials, right? Everyone wants to take the train at the same day, um, at the same time in the morning. Everyone wants to come back at the same time. But you can't operate a service only during some times and offer no service during other times. And that, I think, is a fundamental challenge that needs to be addressed. Uh, now, again, the likes of Uber and Lyft certainly have been quite effective in doing so. And these companies should be commended uh, for their, you know, th- their ability to leverage invention and innovation to connect people more seamlessly to the service. Uh, that is the most important factor, certainly, uh, but that is not the only factor. Uh, to Alex's point about geofencing, um, and we've written about this a little bit, the challenge with geofencing, of course, is that if you restrict your operations to a very small subsection of the city, uh, the value proposition of the technology goes down, uh, right? Because now you can't take that vehicle to go ver- wherever you want, when you want, which again gets to this issue of how do you get this technology to upend personal vehicle ownership, which is what you know um, the likes of Uber have been talking about. Um, I do concur with Alex when he talks about you know sort of pricing in some sort of I would not call it irrational behavior. Um, you know, people might believe the technology is safer and therefore they're willing to use it. However, what I would say is that the evidence supporting this claim is weak. And the reason I would say that is if you look at at uh, the longevity of a vehicle, let's just take the United States. If you look at the average life of a vehicle in the United States, uh, it's ticking upwards, right? People are just holding on to their cars for longer and longer. And this has been one of the comments that the Trump administration has been using as the impetus to lower the CAFE standards, right? The corporate uh, average fuel economy standards. Yet, if you look at the safety innovations that have come out in these vehicles over the last decade, over the last two decades, these vehicles have undoubtedly become safer. There's no doubt about it. You know, um, blind spot detectors, uh, rear-facing cameras, etc. If people were truly motivated by safety um, as their sort of preeminent concern, you would see a downtick, right? You would expect the average age of a vehicle to go down over time, not to go up. Uh, that's not to dismiss Alex's point um, entirely, but rather to say we uh, often see discrepancies between what people say they're willing to pay for and what they actually pay for. You know, it would be interesting to maybe clarify a little bit, just sort of like, um, because you mentioned that 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 there are some expenses that it really doesn't matter if you if you change them pretty significantly in the model, specifically around the the capital cost. I mean, it would just be good to give people, first of all, like we haven't really even said sort of what what are the the costs um, that, you know, the fair prices that you're coming to for, you know, in your model. But then, um, so, so maybe talk about sort of the range of prices that you think are realistic um, based on your analysis. And then maybe sort of, you know, does the difference between AVs costing $15,000 and them costing $200,000, uh, does the difference between having a $250,000 medallion, which I think you have in your model versus having $0 for a medallion, um, do do those literally not? I mean, they have to have some impact on, on what, what gets yeah, charged. So that's a fair point. So um, 
I was, uh, <laughs> I received a couple of very rude uh, and aggressive emails after our paper came out challenging the medallion idea. And were they from? I, I, I can't say. I, I won't say. Oh, <laughs> but, what, but what I would say is that we were explaining to these individuals that the reason why a medallion cost is in there is because that is what the status quo is today. I don't know if a medallion will be there in the future. You don't know. Uh, so we adopt the approach that we, you know, we throw it all in there and we see what sticks. Um, the medallion, uh, it, it amounts to about 16 cents a mile in our model. It does levy an influence, uh, but it is fourth on the list. Um, so there are, uh, you know, the profit expectations, the capacity utilization, and the teleoperation are far more important influencers. If we think about car ownership in the United States today, we, we, you know, we estimated the cost of owning a car in San Francisco to be about 72 cents. Uh, this number is roughly in line with numbers that AAA have put out. Uh, before Alex says anything, I will say I I I I I concur uh, that this does not price in certain other externalities, right? Nuisances of having to drive and sitting in traffic, etc. Um, if you think about a taxi today in San Francisco, at least it's about three dollars and fifty five cents a mile. The average trip in San Francisco is about three point two miles. Uh, and if you think about Uber, I think currently Uber's rate hovers around $2.50, $2.40 a mile in San Francisco. Um, and most of these companies have said, look, we can offer you a ride for mere cents uh, you know, on, on the dollar effectively, and we can make a huge profit from it. And if you consider uh, the market that Uber and ride-hailing companies are going after, the market they want, the market they need is personal vehicle ownership. And the way you know that is that if you go back to 2009, uh, mobility as a service or mobility on demand, if you will, taxis, accounted uh, for about 0.05% of total VMT. 0.05, it's, it's negligible. Ten years later, as of 2019, they accounted for a 0.05%. <laughs> Oh, sorry, 0.5%, excuse me. So it's a tenfold increase, but it's still very, very small. So if you really want to make money, you need to disrupt personal vehicle ownership. And what we are showing is that if consumers are motivated by price alone, that's going to be a tough challenge. We estimate the price um, in the best case scenario, which we still believe is unrealistic. To be about a dollar twenty to a dollar fifty, but again, that's assuming one person is watching over fifty autonomous vehicles, which we think is unlikely, etc. And that's and that's price, not cost. That's price. But the assumption there is that teleoperation is absolutely essential in order for the vehicle to uh, for vehicle uptime. Uh, it assumes that uh, regardless of how mature your technology is, you require some degree of oversight. We don't presume what the nature of that oversight is. We don't say, well, a person is going to need to physically you know, drive the vehicle or bring the vehicle to a stop. We just assume you, require, you need to have eyes on the road or eyes on a monitor, etc. And this type of model is very analogous to supervisory control today. When we look at air traffic control rooms, you know, airlines have these big system operation centers from where they monitor all the airplanes in the entire network. It's similar to the nuclear power plant industry. It's similar to the energy sector. It's a very common setup. And we've seen this 
right? We've seen, uh, you know, uh, Waymo, for example, has a huge teleoperation center that they built out in Arizona where they're monitoring all of these. Uh, Nissan is said to be doing something similar. Um, and frankly, I think our, the cost of teleoperation, I think our numbers are an estimate, are an underestimate, excuse me, for a number of different reasons, one of which is that we don't consider the capital cost of actually building out the center, which is going to be, quite frankly, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Kirsten and I saw this up up close, right? When we did the Waymo ride and we talked to the UX developers there, they really like that need for even just uh, someone that that the person in the ride can talk to uh, on the other end of a phone. I mean, there's a number of ways in which a human touch is really going to be necessary for these to operate, especially oh, yeah. when they're operating driverlessly. Right. And especially the next decade, I would say, I mean, that might ultimately change, but you know, the, people are going to require that. So this might be a good time um, to ask my question. We, we know because you've mentioned it um, while, you know, during this show and also prior the sort of some of the negative pushback or reaction among <laughs> folks in the um, autonomous vehicle um, industry. But I'm wondering if anyone within that industry actually has come out in support of it and um, maybe privately or not, if there are pieces of your paper that they actually agree with. Privately, yes. Uh, you know, we, we, we've been, I've, I, I've had the liberty of speaking to quite a few uh, venture capitalists. Um, and, uh, you know, when they looked at our numbers, uh, and I had two people in particular who had previously sat on a board of a major auto company. And what they said to me after they saw us present our work is the modeling you have done is far more complex uh, than what we suspect many of the automakers have done. Um, so there have been pockets of, uh, I guess, support, um, but most people tell us that we're being pessimistic. Uh, you know, my response to that is uh, our our goal is not to be driven by pessimism or by optimism, but rather to be driven by realism. If you make a claim, the question is, does the claim stand up to scrutiny? Um, if I were to see all the savings that you're talking about in terms of insurance, et cetera, et cetera, is the price point something people are willing and able to pay for? Uh, we've also had, uh, you know, we've also had uh, pushback from the academic community, um, and I suspect there are a number of reasons for that. Um, but you know, the, as a, as I was, as an academic told me relatively recently, um, killing sacred cows doesn't go over very well. You you mentioned before we started recording that that some uh, a journal actually objected to the fact that you built a profit margin into your model for these companies like that it, it was the, I mean I assume that's coming from sort of an, that maybe that's the difference between the academic critiques versus the the industry critiques yeah we we had uh, interaction is probably a good phrase to use with uh, one very high profile journal um, and uh, the editor uh, slash reviewer effectively said that your numbers are wrong because you assume that fleet operators would want to make a profit. Um, and the next phrase was, in a perfectly competitive market, uh, margins are zero. And that that is true, but how many perfectly competitive markets do you know of? Um, and, you know, I mean, again, this is, this is, I think, part of the challenge, right, is that um, whenever you're dealing with a, with a relatively new technology in a relatively new area, um, it gives people the freedom to do lots of very interesting and creative work, but it also gives people the freedom to just espouse their opinions about what they want it to be versus what it will be or what it's likely to be. 
yeah, technology, new technology in particular, has a tendency to sort of create a certain amount of magical thinking, which is um, sure. Yeah, I mean, I I don't know I don't know how many of you had um, were familiar with. Um, I think it was a relative relatively recently when Morgan Stanley revised its uh, its valuation of Waymo, and they went from one hundred and seventy five billion to one hundred and five billion. And if you read the investor note, what it says is the reason we are downgrading the valuation um, is because the technology is taking longer to hit the market than we thought. And secondly, safety drivers are still in the cars. And when I read the note, I was telling someone at a bank, I said, the problem with this note is that A, um, these investment bankers thought the technology would hit the market as quickly as they believed it would. But more importantly, that they believe that safety drivers can be removed in their entirety. Um, give me, I, I mean, I would be surprised. I've, asked, I've challenged people on this. I can't think of a single domain, not one, single safety critical domain where human oversight has been removed completely. I can't think of one. Why would you think it's any different for uh, the transportation industry? Well, then it comes, everything comes down to the ratio of a supervisor to machine. Yes. And yet you said you modeled it out to 1,500 to 1 and still didn't work? It still, it still didn't work. But again, uh, remember, Alex, that this is not considering some of the other sort of the behavioral economics aspects of this, right? How much more are people willing to pay, for example, a little bit more comfort, a little bit, quote unquote, of a safer ride? Um, and we don't uh, consider those aspects um, of human behavior in our model. I would also factor in uh, privacy and reliability. Fair enough. Uh, absolutely. Uh, you know, the, the, if someone is willing to pay more for a more reliable service, that certainly should be considered. But what I would say is that's not the rhetoric we have heard so far, right? It's uh, not the case that these companies say, oh, you will pay more for this and it's going to be better. They say, no, you will pay less and it's going to be better. Yeah, and and as you mentioned, I mean, Uber and Lyft absolutely promised that they were going to make. Well, they the yeah, big part of their pitch was that they were going to make inroads into private vehicle ownership, and that clearly hasn't happened. And in fact, you know, there's evidence to suggest that uh, it increases congestion in certain markets, and that it's even propped up, you know, sales of sedans for certain companies. I mean, I think that's one of the reasons Toyota is an investor in Uber is that they sell a lot of Corollas and you know vehicles that are very slow selling on the private market right now. Um, I think can help but think that there are that some of the OEM investors in these companies themselves may not be entirely certain how they will become profitable on their own, but in a bigger picture, they want to own both sides of all mobility options. As and by the way, they probably should. I don't have a lot of faith in the companies that, as you put it, say that this will make people not own cars. Uh, but I do have a lot more faith in the companies that see that a car, AV or not, has to exist inside an ecosystem of other modes. And if I were running an OEM, I would want to be invested in all the modes. So I win no matter which mode falls out. And I want to make sure that a frictionless platform exists, which is the one thing that Uber and Lyft have given us, yeah. is an app that makes it easier to choose. If, if only such apps were linked to modes in a true free market, as opposed to one with all these distortions that we have. So, so I mean, actually, on that point, not not just um, modality, uh, different different mo connecting different modes, but also potentially having AVs operate in mixed business models. That's something that Ford, which is uh, obviously a major Argo investor, uh, has talked about. Um, in that you know, mobility demand is peaky. 
Um, but things like delivery can be happening sort of in the middle of the night when, and that's a way to keep those vehicles optimized. Is that, is that the direction your research is going to look at, at, at different kinds of business models or, or, or sort of where are you taking this? Because I think you've done, a, you really made a pretty convincing case that just get, you know, doing the robo tax or doing the taxi business, but with, with, with autonomous vehicles, that's not going to work. Um, so where does your research sort of go from here as you, as you dig deeper into this sort of broader issue of robo taxi economics or, or autonomous vehicle economics? Well, what we would like to do um, is try to figure out what is the nature of the business model that works both for consumers and for investors. That's what we would like to do. Uh, but, um, <laughs> you know, uh, we always have to find funding for this type of work, which is a bit odd considering the billions that people are throwing into driverless cars. Um, so that, that's what we would like to do. Of course, it just depends on how much interest there is, et cetera. Uh, you know, that being said, um, I have some sneaking suspicions as to what I think the the business model is or would look like for some of these companies. Uh, but I have to I have to think through that a little bit more. Um, it's uh, yeah, that's can what I would can say. Can you give a hint? Like, is it, is it about no? Well, I mean, it be? is it what kind of jobs it's doing? So, so I think Alex had talked about this earlier when he was saying, well, you know, uh, I mean, Uber has been upfront. I think relatively recently there was a piece that appeared in the Financial Times about Uber not owning the actual AV. The fleet, exactly. Um, so I, I had, you know, I, I had some colleagues there, and they had asked me about it, and you know, I mean, the name of the game effectively is reducing your costs. And I said, well, you could make the car free, and this this type of model doesn't really help you anyway. Um, now, that's not to say that, you know, I mean, I think the the, the, the phrase that Dara Khosrowshahi uses is asset light, right? That he wants the company to be asset light. Um, so, you know, that's certainly a model uh, that has certain benefits. It does not have, in my view, the cost benefits that the company thinks it does. But to me, ultimately, this is really going to come down to... Uh, uh, behavioral economics. Uh, you know, the, the issue of, uh, you know, using the vehicle, for example, to uh, deliver food, uh, I would say two things in response to this. The first is, with all due respect, uh, I don't want to hail uh, an autonomous vehicle um, that, you know, has had your, your lunch sitting in my seat, you know, just a, a few minutes prior. That's number one. Uh, number two, uh, the economics of food delivery uh, are not, in my view at least, uh, within the context of ride-hailing, very well understood. Uh, so I'll give you an example of this. So I know that, um, I think someone can correct me, I believe it's GM or Ford that has the marketplace in their vehicle, right? The little, um, uh, the I, I think it shows you whether, I think they have some sort of contract with Dunkin' Donuts. Yeah, and it shows General Motors. Yeah, General, General Motors. Um, and I think the, the Wall Street Journal had a piece where they were sort of trying to figure out how much money they make on a per driver basis of this, you know, ancillary revenue of sorts. And they were talking of something like 40 to $60 a year per driver. Uh, and if you, if you take that value and you divide it by the total number of miles of vehicle travels, it's minuscule. It's absolutely minuscule. It doesn't even matter. But does the... What about if the, the 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 form factor of the autonomous vehicle is is changed? So it's not a passenger vehicle using that's being used for food delivery, but it's one of these you know smaller vehicles that can fit into a bike lane. Do the economics pencil out in that case? Because you know you could argue that the asset itself is 
um, is less expensive, potentially less expensive to operate. Have you studied that at all? We have not, but uh, again, the the reason why we have not is because for us, uh, you know, when when people, if if you think about the preeminent talking point of the industry, it's the ability of the technology to save lives, and if you assume that the majority of road accidents and road injuries occur um, amongst people with personally owned vehicles, that's ideally the market you want to target. So I think there was a phrase that. John Krafzik has been using, um, he said, you know, when you think about road crashes, you know, something like 1.2 million, 1.3 million a year, uh, it's it's the equivalent of a 737 crashing every hour of every day. Um, and that's just unacceptable. It's like, well, if you really want to upend, um, you know, that particular statistic, you need to disrupt personal vehicle ownership. Um, that's not to say once again, uh, uh, Kristen, that uh, there might not be a, you know, a a vehicle right-sizing model, if you will, um, where autonomous vehicle technology could work. Um, I just think that investing in that particular approach might, from a public policy perspective, not yield the public health benefits that we are that are often talked about. So, actually, uh, I guess what I'm kind of curious is, you know, the paper is out. There, there have been responses. You're probably tracking it, but where do you see it going and playing out from here? I mean, do you think that? Um, companies are going to go heads down, continue to do what they've been doing, um, that ultimately, you know, what you put out in the paper will, will prove out or are, do you think that actually there could be some shifts somehow within, um, you know, either the industry or the economics that could change the outcome? I I guess I'm looking for a prediction a bit right now. Well, I, I would say, I would say two things. The first thing I would say is, you know, I can't speak to whether or not um, what we are saying will be true in the future. What I can say is on the basis of the data we have available now, this is the best uh, guess we can make. Um, I would say two things as well. The first is that we have already seen, uh, and I was surprised to hear this, uh, last November, I believe, at a conference, I think it was an interview with a reporter from the New York Times, Dara Khosrowshah, he came out and said, well, um, you know, we're going to be raising prices in some markets, which, you know, surprised me a little bit. But he was also asked about um, ride hailing and autonomous systems. And he said, well, you know, uh, ride sharing or ride pooling is part of being autonomous, uh, part of their autonomous package, which also surprised me. Um, I said, well, the two have nothing to do with each other. And the only way they would have something to do with each other is if you can't get the economics to work without pooling multiple people in a vehicle. And we allude to this in the vehicle, in, in our paper, uh, right? The current occupancy rate of a car is about 1.6 people. Um, the actual number we suspect is much lower. Um, all else being equal, we estimate you would need to increase that to 2.2 to 2.3 in a best case scenario. You know, my response to that is good luck, um, right? Uh, but that being said, we have had, I think, UBS revised some of its uh, investor guidance uh, last year um, after our paper came out in which, you know, they went through our numbers and, uh, you know, um, they said, yeah, you're effectively correct. I was I was in a meeting with another bank um, relatively recently. I had a someone relatively high up and the person said to me, he was sitting around with all his auto analysts and he says, can you explain to me how you figured this out? And my response was, I can count to 10, uh, right? And that, 
you know, people have invested a lot of money. They have a lot of very bright people um, using very sophisticated numbers um, and techniques to arrive at a decision. But sometimes you don't need the most complicated algorithms to solve uh, a problem. Sometimes uh, simplicity is the ultimate sophistication. Uh, that's a that's a great point, and maybe maybe a good point to leave it at since we're uh, running out of time. So I, I would before we go, uh, we will absolutely link to this paper uh, both in the uh, post for this uh, episode at autonicast.com, also on our Twitter account. Um, if folks want to follow you um, or stay in touch with your uh, your what you're up to and 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 follow your work, uh, what's the best way for them to do that? Oh, I, uh, I mean, I, I write relatively frequently uh, for different uh, media outlets, so they can just, you know, they can just shoot me an email. I'm, I'm a social media, a social media adverse. Um, I, uh, so, not, not the only guest who said that. Is, is that true? Okay. Oh yeah, yeah. We get quite a few socially adverse folks on, or socially, okay. uh, social media adverse, adverse. Yeah, not socially adverse. No, social media. Big, big difference. All right, uh, Dr. Ashley Nunes, thank you so much for uh, for taking the time. This is a fascinating topic. We could have easily uh, put another couple hours into it, uh, and uh, but you know we, we got to let you go. You're a busy guy. Um, thank you so much uh, for making the time, and uh, we definitely hope that uh, you'll come back again in the future so we can continue to uh, discuss this really, really important and unfortunately under discussed topic. Thank you so much, Rick. and we will see you all next time on another episode of the Atomicast. Bye.